search engines run our lives. The path we take to information is dictated by Google, Facebook, Amazon, and other forms of search. Search engines feel objective and truthful, but they're built through ongoing experimentation and subjective decision-making. That's what has kept Danny Sullivan writing about search engines for 20 years. The content Google prioritizes, the ads that we see, the way that a product review changes how highly a search result appears on a screen. These are the topics that Danny studies. He's the founder of Search Engine Land, an invaluable resource for news and updates about search engines and marketing. I've been reading Search Engine Land since college, so it was a treat to sit down for a conversation with Danny. Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors for Q3. If your company has a product or a service, or if you're hiring, Software Engineering Daily reaches 23,000 engineers listening daily. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, if you're interested. Thanks for listening to the show. Danny Sullivan is the founder of Search Engine Land. Danny, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I've been reading your work since I was in college, and I think that was like seven years ago. And one thing that you have captured in your writing, even back then, is how engineering and marketing have become intertwined. And this started with email marketing, I think, but it got much more interesting with search engine optimization. What did search engine optimization, what did that term mean in the earliest days? Well, I mean, in the very earliest days, we didn't even have it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it emerged around, I think, 97 or so. And the idea was really that the search engines were going to interact with websites and look at the information on them. And depending on what they could gather would have an impact on whether or not your listings would rank well in the top results. And at the time, there were things like, you know, people publishing websites that were all made of images, and the search engines couldn't understand anything that was in the images. And so part of search engine optimization or SEO was understanding you need to use real words, or people would build websites out of frames, and the search engines couldn't crawl all the frames properly. And so again, you had these architectural limitations as to how well your content would perform, because in some cases, it just literally wasn't visible. Hmm. And searching and optimization, it built into a, a term that meant trying to outsmart the search engine. But it sounds like in the earliest days, like if you have a site that's all images, that's not necessarily something that is shouldn't be indexed, and yet there's not an obvious way to index it. So that's something where you might actually it's beneficial to the end user to add some search engine optimization to it. Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, you know, it, it depends on who you talk to and, and where they were and what they were doing. But, you know, a lot of people didn't view search engine optimization even from the start as trying to outsmart the search engines, but rather understanding what did you need to do to build content to be friendly to the search engines to ensure that they could access your content. It was akin to, I remember when I was writing about this, when we had many browsers and people used to say, is your browser going to work with, you know, NCSA Mosaic or your website work with that? Or are you going to work with Netscape? Are you able to work with Internet Explorer? And you'd have developers who would test all those sorts of things. And 
one of the things I used to talk about with the idea of search engines being the biggest browser of all, and that you know you had to ensure that this stuff could work with them as well. Another example too was the idea that search engine optimization is very much like a, a PR effort, and so. When people undertake PR, typically it's not that they're trying to somehow outsmart a newspaper, but it's the idea that, you know, if you understand how journalists operate, how they gather information, what's helpful to them, what's not helpful to them, you know, you increase the odds that your coverage will be better. And that's sort of a different thing than, say, trying to outsmart or game a search engine where typically people might do things that are not within the search engine's guidelines themselves. They go into what's called black hack tactics, and then it really is, you know, I just want to be number one no matter what. Mm. And there was this period that the spam versus anti-spam began to emerge. I guess, I don't know if that was 97 or 98 or if it was later than that. But that's when people started doing things that were on the malicious side, where just to promote your page, you would embed lots of transparent text or white text against a white background. And what was that battle like to watch in the early days as SEO was uh, was decreasing the you know the relevance of some Google results? Well, it was interesting. I mean, we even had it, you know, just. I think as long as people were were dealing with the search engines, say 95 or so, you know, one good example was at the time when InfoSeq was a popular search engine and you had the ability to have it re-index your page just as soon as you wanted to submit a URL and push submit. It would do this instant indexing. And so people would go through and they would submit their page and they would then see if they ranked better. And if they didn't, they would immediately make a bunch of changes and and just kind of keep going at it in that way. You had other people that started doing what was quickly known as doorway pages, which were that they would create content that was meant to rank, you know, just for the search engines and really didn't have an intent on trying to show up for human beings at all. And they would add to that the concept of cloaking, which was that you would create a page just for the search engine only the search engine would see it. And if a human being then tried to go to that same page, they would see something completely different. And so you you had a lot of cat and mouse stuff that was going on. You had a sense of it sort of being the Wild West. You know, you had one case really early on that even went up to the FTC where, you know, people were taking content from other publishers and putting it on their own servers and cloaking it and trying to get top rankings. And so, you know, it it really was like there was no sheriff in town to some regards. And people, you know, would get frustrated if they couldn't get the the best results. Although I would say the the bigger issue wasn't really just that the SEO stuff or the black hat tactics were polluting the results as much as you just had more and more information coming onto the web and it was becoming increasingly difficult for the search engines to find the the needle in the haystack, if you will, just from all the noise that was out there, whether it was intentional or just, you know, a consequence of the growth of the web. What's happened since then? What are the main trends in how SEO has evolved? Well, you know, the the big shift really was when Google came out and they started making use of the link graph and link analysis and looking at how people were linking from one page to the other and trying to determine, you know, the, the popularity and the relevance of these pages so that you know, they were able to kind of get that signal out from the noise because they were bringing the, the better stuff up to the top. You know, and then following from that, you had a huge growth in people just trying to buy links or gain links and do that sort of stuff. And so, you know, even more tactics have evolved since then where they try to go after the artificial link networks and, and such. But, you know, the link 
usage was certainly one of the biggest changes that we saw happen. Other changes that we saw influence stuff were the uh, growth of the vertical searches so that, you know, if you're looking for news content, you'd have a news search engine and then the news content might do better for a search that seemed to be news related. And you had image search and you had shopping search. Around, I think it was 2009, we had a shift towards uh, personalized search results so that the stuff that seemed more relevant to you based on your browsing ha habits and your past search history started giving you a more personalized result. And it made it more difficult for people to sort of game because instead of, you know, gaming the search engine and getting a top ranking for everybody, you know, you might not be getting it for everybody because so many people were getting personalized results. And then we've had changes to, you know, increasing efforts to fight spam to the degree of things that some people may have heard of, like, you know, the Panda update that was designed to try to figure out what was low quality content and keep that from ranking better. And more lately, just the growth in the mobile web and trying to better reward faster loading and more mobile friendly pages. And so, you know, every every year, every few months even, you get these changes that come along that keep kind of raising the bar and that are things that are, you know, important for both marketers and even developers to understand. When I think about mobile, I think about taking on my phone and sometimes I navigate to, I go to Facebook or I open up the Facebook app and then I go to this, some news site that I get linked to on Facebook. And then the ads are just like loading like crazy and the ads are such an affront to my experience. And it just makes me think, man, if Google were responsible for this, piece of quality it would never make to the top of the search rankings but the fact that a lot of attention has shifted to this news feed model of consumption rather than a search based or a you know I email you link sort of model it seems like it's really changed the content consumption of the internet certainly i mean you know you've got two things that kind of happened there you you had previously to say Facebook coming along, especially the idea that the search engines and Google in particular were somehow the gatekeeper in the way that people would get, you know, all of their content. And then you had this new growth in consumption where social media came alongside it. It wasn't that people were consuming less through the search engines. It's just that they were spending even more of their time now also consuming through social media. And the social media having their own challenges. And it's been interesting watching people like Facebook having to constantly update their algorithm to try to fight low quality content in the same way that we've watched the search engines and Google in particular do that over the years. And even as, you know, you've seen this rise in ads, you've seen Google itself try to do things. They've had any number of efforts where they've they've said, you know, if you have ad heavy pages, you might not do as well. If you have experiences where you're interrupting the user too much and, you know, your pop-ups might be too interfering, especially on mobile, that you might not perform as well in the search results. So, you know, it's it's continued evolution of, of trying to get people mm -hmm. to good content. Facebook has algorithms that promote certain posts. Google has algorithms that promote certain search results. I know you're on the outside looking in, so you probably can't say with with super significant authority, but, but to what degree, I mean, how do these compare? How do the algorithms of promotion compare? Well, it's, you know, it's much different because with Facebook, their algorithms are, you know, heavily tied into, you know, the personal experience and showing you stuff that seems to be related to what you're already viewing or what your friends are liking or what may be popular among your network. 
Whereas, you know, Google, while it has the personalization, I think is, you know, far less prone to do that kind of filtering. And so you also will have Facebook, I think, try to look at what this community of known users is doing and the amount of time they're spending and so on. Google can do that to some degree, but the the connections are not as strong, you know, and they don't they don't see everything, let's say, that's going out on the web, whereas Facebook will see everything that's happening in terms of a click from its own network. Now, mm-hmm. now, Google can do that based on how people are clicking on their own search results. So, you know, they do have some degree of that as well. But I think that, you know, Facebook just might have better insight in that regard. Does Google also get more comprehensive insight because they are the browser that is the most popular at this point? You know, it, it gets debatable. They they get data from how people are browsing. I've even lost track at this point to the degree that they say that's used or not used within their search mm-hmm. results. I think their last stance was, no, we're not we're not using it. People don't necessarily always believe that. And, and maybe there was a, an announcement along the way where I've missed that sort of stuff. But, you know, they certainly can see a lot of the browsing that's going on. They have the potential to understand how long people are dwelling on certain websites and what they're doing there. Certainly on a personal basis, they'll use that information. We know that they'll use that as part of your, your personalized search results, the websites that you're going to. And in aggregate, you know, potentially they're using it as well. And, and it does give them a lot of insight in that regard. As well as the idea that, you know, they have many sites out there that run things like Google Analytics, which means that they see a lot of the tracking that's going there. They typically have said that they don't use stuff like Google Analytics. And that kind of makes sense because you can't rely on something that not everybody's using. So if you've got some sites that don't use it and they don't have insight into it, then it makes it difficult to decide you want to reward or not reward based on that. It's interesting because personally, I feel more tracked by Facebook, even though I know that that's not true, because every time I go to Facebook, it, I don't know, it's just that I guess the way the perception I have for how I consume the Facebook product convinces me that I am being tracked more by Facebook and Google is more of this ambient, all seeing eye that is like, oh, the internet's tracking me, but it's actually, it's Google is <laughs> probably the, the biggest broker of the tracking there. Yeah, I would say that certainly Google has, you know, greater insight across the overall web than Facebook, although Facebook has a lot because when you consider how many people will have like a Facebook widget on their pages, and that's data that all goes back to Facebook if someone's logged in. But, you know, ultimately, you have to have a Facebook account. And while so many people do have a Facebook account, you know, Google sort of agnostic, they don't care if you have a Facebook account or not, they're still, they're still seeing the data from a wide, wide range of resources. Mm-hmm. There was an article today on Search Engine Land, the, the site that you run, that was about reviews. And these could be Yelp reviews, they could be Amazon reviews, we could be talking about any number of review sites. How do reviews play into search rankings? Well, when it comes into the local results, you know, Google has talked about the idea that they'll try to take into account, you know, whether sites are are reviewed well and perhaps reward them in that regard to the degree that they can they can gather that data. Certainly they have a better sense of it just from their own Google Maps product and when people do reviews in that way. So it, it really seemed to have more of an impact when you're talking about local search results. In particular, it's something that they've wanted to do and and made an effort a few years ago when you had someone who had a uh, 
that had like an eyeglasses site that got focused on in the New York Times because the person was convinced that any kind of review, whether or not it was negative or positive, was a citation that would help them rank better. And so they they were the whole story was about how they were happy to be, you know, horrible to customers. They didn't care. They would still always win. And, you know, mm. Google went through and said, well, it's not quite how it works that way, but we're still going to take a, a stronger emphasis on ensuring that if we are showing sites that they are sites in local that are you know that are better reviewed <laughs> hmm. there's a lot of critical press around yelp some people accuse yelp of essentially strong arming businesses into paying for yelp's services or else they get de-indexed from yelp and whether or not this is true i kind of see it as like this is what would happen if if Google was evil or or if they maybe if they if they had the internal mantra of do evil or, or intentionally do evil, this is the kind of stuff that they would do. Well what what do you think of those accusations around Yelp? Do you think there's any is there any truth to that? Well, I mean they've been concerning and, and certainly there have been some cases where you're like well, isn't it funny somebody did poorly on Yelp and then suddenly they got a call from a Yelp salesperson. Yelp has been steadfast in saying it, it doesn't work that way and that they're not trying to target people and that, you know, it's it's not that you're just going to buy your way up to the top. But, you know, I think it's one of those things you, you still want to keep an eye on and that, that it still needs to be watched. But yeah, you know, it, when when you hear things like, I got a call from a salesperson as soon as I got a bad review, it's like, wow, okay, <laughs> what's going on there? And there's like a lot of cases where people have said that happens. But yeah, it, it is it is a little disconcerting. And I, it could be one of those things that's like driven by internal incentives that are pretty opaque to the outside, where it's maybe one of these things like the Wells Fargo pressure to do cross-selling where... Maybe there wasn't necessarily an explicit directive from upper management, but it's just one of these things where like, oh, the way that the incentives are set up, it just permeates the company. It could even be where the incentives were not initially set up to do this kind of thing that is just like it's a malicious outgrowth. And because they haven't done anything to quash it. It's just a way that it's just a facet of the company. Yeah. And I I think the the hardest thing I think for a business is that you – Especially, I think a few years ago, you'd have these local businesses that were, you know, just local businesses and being very busy doing their business. They're not internet savvy. They're not, or they weren't, you know, up on the idea that necessarily they should even be on Yelp or that they already were on Yelp and they didn't know it or how they should be responding to customer inquiries, much less being on things like Google Maps that, you know, they, they were local and dealing with people because they walked in through the door and they, they dealt with them that way. So, you know, you, you kind of feel for them when suddenly they've had this whole internet kind of injected and they've had to figure out how we make time, how we come up with the expertise, how we deal with this sort of stuff. You know, I think these days, though, if you're a local business, you understand something like Yelp is a fact of life, and and you really can't just sort of ignore it in the way that you could have in the past. You you have to have a strategy about it. You have to understand that if there are people complaining that you're interacting with them in that way, you're you're never going to please everybody. But you know, I, I think the more that you can be proactive, the the better it's going to be for you. Yelp is a kind of a product where there's not necessarily going to be as much consumer. Scrutiny. I mean, there may be some consumer scrutiny, but when I go on Yelp and I find a restaurant, 
I usually find the restaurant, I go and eat there, and I'm like, okay, that was good, decent restaurant. But in contrast to Amazon, you know, Amazon it kind of it has a bigger ownership of the of the end to end experience. You know, if you if people are returning products on Amazon, Amazon has a better view into the product quality, and I think you know maybe that's led to Amazon having a better reputation among customers. Do you consider Amazon a search company? Yeah, to some degree, certainly in terms of shopping search. I mean, if you are looking to buy a product, Amazon is a shopping search engine, a first choice for so many people at this point. I certainly know it is for me that if I'm purchasing something, the first place I'm going to go to will be Amazon rather than, say, a few years ago where I might have gone to Google and I did a Google shopping search. And, you know, I'll look through Amazon and see the prices that I'm getting there and if I feel they're reasonable or if they're good. And, and if Amazon fails me, then I may turn and go back to Google and see if there's a product elsewhere or see if the price is better in some other place. And that's a real flip-flop, you know. And, and again, that's, you know, it's always dangerous when you talk about your personal experiences versus, say, what people are doing by and large. Yeah. But, you know, I, I don't think that's probably too far off the mark that you have lots of people who, you know, turn to Amazon when they need to buy things. And that means that they're conducting a search to see what's out there that they want to find. Hmm. You know, I've heard that there are these people who are just voracious reviewers on Yelp. They're rev- voracious product reviewers on Amazon. I've certainly seen some of these people where you see these beautifully written reviews and it's all, it's like a work of art and these people are certainly legitimate but it's of course hard to know who out of that group is a legitimate user and who is maybe a paid user or I mean what do you think about that like paid reviews business or do, do you have any perspective for what percentage of reviews on the internet are legitimate and how that plays into what gets promoted in terms of products or restaurants? I don't have any good statistics on that, so I, mm. I, I couldn't say with any great deal of authority. Yeah. Certainly, you can see, say, on Amazon, and anybody who's purchased something from them may have been through this experience where you get the product and they're like, you know, please leave us a review and we'll, you know, perhaps give you 10% off. Or what's more noticeable is when you go in and you look at some of these things that are highly rated on Amazon and then you look at the reviews and they're all like, I was given this product in return for my free and unbiased review. (laughs) And, you know, the more I see things like that, the less likely I am to trust that the product is actually that good because they've clearly made Mm. an effort and and perhaps too much of an effort to go out there and, and do that. On Yelp, I don't use that as much as Amazon, but, you know, I, I personally tend to trust the reviews that look like they were from just human beings that went there and weren't trying to be the greatest Yelp person in the world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just saying I like this or not, you know, the difficulty I think with all of these cases is that the people you may trust the most may not have the incentive to go there. You know, I, I depend a lot on Amazon reviews and then I'm fairly rare that I'll actually go and leave a review. When I look at Yelp stuff, I'll depend on that. And then, you know, I'll forget or just not make the time to go back and put my own review of a place that I I like. And it's kind of unfortunate because I think you do have a lot of businesses that deserve to get that kind of credit when they've had good experiences. But for, if you will, the real people, the non-professional people, et cetera, you know, their incentive to leave reviews probably tends to happen when they have bad experiences, right? Because <laughs> now you're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something as opposed to, yeah, I just had a great meal. That was a wonderful restaurant and I'm done. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Back to Google. Do you have much insight into how decisions around search are made 
internally at Google? Well, they have a bunch of meetings among the different search teams. They've even had some that they put out online so people themselves could actually watch one of these search quality meetings that they've had where they've talked about some of the changes that they're considering doing. You know, should we make this kind of shift? We make that kind of shift. What would happen if we do or if we don't do? So, you know, you... I think you have a variety of people that are involved and it kind of goes up the line as to whether something's troublesome or not in terms of they need to make a change and then trying to evaluate what what kind of change they should make. And they certainly are constantly experimenting. I can't remember if they've said they're always running like a hundred or a thousand experiments at any time, but they're, you know, they're certainly not sitting back and, and just saying, well, we're done. You know, they, they, they do all sorts of things and you know, I think especially the more that they feel like something has a public focus, the more that they may fixate time on trying to solve those sorts of issues. You had a recent post about how Google is penalizing websites who distribute content with link schemes. Explain what a link scheme is. Google considers a link scheme anything where you're trying to get links back to your website in a way that they would consider unnatural or unearned. So links in a lot of ways to Google are like votes in an election. It's not exactly the same because just because you get a lot of links isn't the same as you get a lot of votes. Google tries to understand the importance of those links. And so they may give greater weight to, say, a link that came to you from the New York Times than they might give to a link that comes from a site that has relatively little authority. And in addition, they're looking at things like the context of the link. So Amazon could have all the links in the world at once, but if all those links are talking about this is a great place to buy books, then it does better for searches related to books rather than to searches related to cars because, you know, you're not buying cars. So what's in the link or around the link or near the link, the context link has a, has a role. So when it comes to these linking schemes, people understand links are important, so they go out and they try to obtain them. And... You know, there are things you can do that Google would consider to be acceptable, and then there are things that they feel like are more extreme. So like in, in this example I was writing about, you would have people who would write content for news sites, and the content that they write, they would give to the news sites for free, and it would contain, you know, many links back to the originating site, to the, to the person who was distributing it. And the links oftentimes would be very, what are called anchor-rich or text rich, you know, they were very, a lot of words in the links, a lot of words that perhaps the site is hoping that it will rank better for. And, you know, the hope is that if these places publish this content, then they've obtained all these links from people across the web and that they may do better for those words. And, you know, Google feels like, you know, taken to some extremes that that's unnatural, that you didn't really earn those links because someone editorially reviewed this content and decided it made a lot of sense to really reward you for it as much as you, you know, just kind of game the system, almost Mm -hmm. kind of like ballot stuffing. Hmm. Yeah, I want to actually talk about search advertising. We've been reporting heavily on online advertising and ad fraud and trying to get a really deep picture for the different players in the advertising space. So I want to talk about both of these. I want to talk about online advertising, and then I want to talk about ad fraud. So I believe 70% of Google's ad revenue comes from search advertising. I think the breakdown is like 70% and then like roughly 30% AdSense, something like that. Explain how search advertising works. Well, it's pretty straightforward. When you're talking about search advertising, 
someone is placing an ad so that when a search is conducted for certain words, their ad will appear. So, you know, you in a basic example, you do a search for, say, cars, and you've got someone like Toyota who wants to show up, and so they buy ads that are linked. So when someone searches for cars, their ad shows up at the top, and it's like, hey, how about buying one of our Toyota cars? You know, and when someone clicks on that ad, Google gets a per-click fee, and that's the basics of it. The more complicated aspects are that, you know, you pay more depending on the popularity and the competition around a term, but you also may pay less and still do better over other people who want that term if your account is shown as having a good history. So that even if there's somebody out there who says, oh, I'll pay $100 per click, and then you've got another person who wants to pay $50 per click, if that person who's willing to pay $50 per click has an ad that actually draws more clicks overall, then Google may reward them because you know they're going to make more money off of that in the long term. And then the mechanisms of buying against words are, are greatly evolved now where you, know, you can actually just buy against certain kind of concepts. Or even as what Google announced last week, you can have your car ad show up only for people that Google's determined are actually in market to buy a car. So, you know, they, they, they determine these people have done a whole bunch of searches related to car purchasing, and now they'll show your ad only to those people as opposed to maybe people who are searching about cars generally, including things like, say, Cars the Movie. So the customers of the search advertising, are the customers the brands themselves, like Toyota? Like, is Toyota directly purchasing the ads, or does Toyota go to an ad agency and then the agency goes and makes the purchase. It can be both or either. So you have brands that buy things directly and companies that buy things directly and manage you know, their own accounts. That's very common. You also have companies that outsource to what are called SEM firms, uh, search engine marketing firms that will go through and you know, run the campaigns on their behalf. And you even have some companies that do both that they may allocate some kinds of efforts to an agency to run, and then they may decide some of the stuff they want to continue to do in-house. When there's outsourcing to agencies, does it misalign the incentives? Because I've heard of stories where a big brand goes to an agency, they pay for a bunch of search advertising, and, and then the agency, maybe the campaign doesn't do so well, so they purchase bot traffic to go and search that term and then click on the ads so that the agency performance looks better? Is that Does that happen? I mean, certainly those kinds of things can happen, but they don't tend to be, I think, long-lasting because mm. one of the things about search advertising is it's incredibly accountable. So unlike, say, buying a brand ad that shows on TV and you could say, look, you know, a million people looked at your ad – a search agency is going to be accountable on whether or not those ads have actually performed in terms of, you know, sales. So someone doesn't just need to see the ad, nor do they just need to click on the ad and then go to the the landing page. They actually need to be converting by some agreed metrics. And if those conversions aren't happening, then, you know, they're still going to be accountable. Now, the conversion could be that, you know, someone has gone through, gone to a landing page and, you know, filled out an interest form. Potentially, you take it out as far as they've actually purchased a car. But, you know, they're, they're really a good agency and, and certainly a good company shouldn't be handing over money for a very long period of time if they're not actually seeing real world results rather than just a bunch of clicks. 
this takes us to the complexities of attribution because if i'm let's say i'm a a car company and i air ads on television i you know i i'm airing search ad, i'm i'm paying for search advertising i'm paying for all these different things and then the customer converts it can be hard to disambiguate what the channel is what the channel is that actually caused the attribution so this i mean i guess this takes us to the that classic saying that oh half my advertising budget is wasted i just don't know which half is attribution an unsolvable problem well like last week google kind of announced that it was solved at least according to them <laughs> you know their 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 google attribution thing that they rolled out was designed to say look we're going to help you really understand what was the conversion or what were the steps along the way, including trying to measure things like in-store sales and whether or not that person had exposure to your ads online or had exposure to your search ads and, and what roles those kind of played. Now, how well that actually plays out, we'll see. I was in the room when this was announced to a bunch of Google advertisers and, and there was real cheering. And it wasn't just cheering because you had a bunch of Googlers up there told to cheer. It was like, yes, these advertisers would love to have better attribution. So, but it becomes even more difficult when you start talking about online advertising because, or offline advertising, because, you know, as you say, how do you know whether or not it was the ad on TV that caused someone to go in as opposed to the ad that you, you know, ran on Google? There are things that can be done that are, that, that have been done. You can, for example, segment out the kind of stuff that you're doing. So, you know, if you're running an online, if you're running a, a television campaign, you know, you should be immediately able to tell whether or not your traffic is spiking because people are doing Google searches, you know, and that's very typical. You have ad campaigns that are run and then people go through, they do some searches and, you know, you can then try to look at what happens in that period of time to understand whether or not it was the the brand awareness that generated that and if you should do more as opposed to just the ads that you might be running anytime when you're not running a big, huge offline campaign as well. And so that's something that's, you know, savvy advertisers would be looking at and trying to understand. And, you know, I think the reality is that it all feeds together. If you ran a offline campaign and you weren't prepared for the people who were then were going to do searches, then you're probably wasting some of the opportunity that you have. This is very common, say, during the Super Bowl, where you have all these ads that might run and then you could go and you'd do searches and you'd find that the advertiser didn't actually run any ads on Google itself. And sometimes you'd even have competing advertisers running against, you know, whatever terms that they were being used to try to kind of, you know, capture the interest of people who might come in that way. So, you know, the, it really is trying to understand how all this stuff filters in together and, you know, and account for it. But, you know, also realizing that probably not any single channel that's ultimately, you know, the, ultimately, the, I don't want to say the blame, but ultimately generating the whole conversion. Mm. So in my reporting for advertising fraud stuff, most of the stuff that I've investigated has been display advertising and a lot of fraud in display advertising. Of course, it's impossible to audit exactly how much there is, but I've talked to a lot of experts and, you know, the the numbers that, you know, the even the lower bound of their numbers is pretty alarming. I don't understand search advertising as well. 
How much fraud is there? Do you have any perspective on that? I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but Google usually does an annual report. The numbers, unsurprisingly, are are very small. I think they're like <laughs> single digits. They usually report a lot about how much they've actually caught before someone's billed on it. It was a very big issue years ago. And in fact, there was a, a whole case that was filed against Google about fraudulent clicks. You would get people, especially who might click on their competitors' ads, or do something like that to drive their competitor prices up. Wow. You know, and, and some people felt like that was going to kill Google. And in fact, the lawsuit was settled and it wasn't settled for that amount of money. And, and it really hasn't been that much of an issue, even with the display ad stuff that's going out there. Google, I think certainly itself comes under targets of, you know, are your display ads suffering abuse? But I think that most of it tends to be on other networks that are perhaps less robust about catching, you know, unnatural clicks and, and things that are happening there. You know, old Ultimately, it comes down to the advertiser looking at their performance. If you, right. you know, you're running these campaigns and suddenly these campaigns that you've not done anything different to are getting more interest in traffic, but less conversion, you know, there's something wrong. And as an advertiser, you certainly behoove you to, to examine it and, and raise the questions with the network itself about what's going on and where are my ads showing and how do I narrow it down to places that are actually working? Well, so here is the thing that's that alarms me is that it's one of these things it's almost like the mortgage crisis where you have a system with really weird incentives and the way that the incentives happen to be structured is such that the system isn't necessarily held accountable so like if you have CMOs who are you know they have an 18 month you know tour of duty in their job then Maybe they're not held super accountable. You have these account managers who are buying ads with other people's money, and maybe they're not necessarily using the best measurement tactics because they're maybe not necessarily interested in how advertising affects the company. They're interested in how advertising will make their job look. So, you know, an account manager who's purchasing display ads might you know, buy it on a sketchy site where they can, as long as, as long as the account manager gets the right metrics, even if, if, the, if those metrics aren't correctly aligned with the business interests of the company where they're purchasing the ads for, you know, that's not going to lead to, you know, s- smart purchasing decisions. And then, you know, when you have all these buy side incentives messed up, that just leads to the sell side, the advertise the ad tech businesses offering products that are, just catering to the misaligned incentives of the buy side. Well, so one thing I'd say is, you know, first, for all the faults that I think happens with with digital marketing, the accountability with digital marketing, you know, seems to be far, far better than the accountability with online marketing. Digital marketing platforms and purchases typically don't involve commission to begin with. So you're just not getting a cut of whatever you spend. You're having to, you know, negotiate to get paid on top of what the actual media purchase is going to be. And then with offline, you know, for example, if you look at those television campaigns that will run, you know, you you may get a sense that, well, this many people looked at your ad, which really isn't taking into the account that that many people just fast forwarded through your ad and didn't really see it. And you don't really know who's watching it. And you have a best guess of what the demographics are. And you know, the the accountability for offline stuff is almost laughable. And and really I think it's it's kind of sad in some ways that digital gets held so accountable for, you know, the waste or the problems that it has because it's so accountable that you can actually figure out what it is, as opposed to offline where you can't you can't tell that as well. Now that having said, no one no one wants 
the waste and you you do want to know that the things you're spending money on are actually effective but i think that even if the cmos are saying well we're we're just spending a lot of money and look at how great i am ultimately more and more is coming back to performance we've had you know cmos i think it was the ftd one i could be off off and i'm trying to think of top of my head a few years ago but i think one of the reasons they were dismissed was that their search campaigns were not performing as well for them to to sell ads in the way that they were expecting you know, that there was a real bottom line, like, why did we not make more money? Oh, we didn't do it because this didn't work. Okay, we're going to get someone else who understands that. So I can certainly see that accountability problem happening. But I do think ultimately what you're going to get is more more of the performance marketers who start to move up into those roles. That I think you're going to have a change where you've had, you know, CMOs who've come out of brand building and offline purchasing and the traditional forms of advertising get replaced by people who grew up, you know, doing search ads or doing display ads who who live and breathe the idea that everything should be measurable. And if you can't back it up, and if I'm not seeing that this is actually increasing things, you know, we're going to make some changes. The things that concern me the most are like I saw this, my somebody I know showed me this scheme recently, and he's going to publish about it eventually. I don't want to say who he is, but it's a scheme where this well-funded company, basically all that they, they do, quote-unquote, marketing, but what they actually do is they pay celebrities to post content on their Facebook page, and because a celebrity is posting it, they get real clicks, and then they use those real clicks to launder fake clicks from bot traffic, and then they just get you know, this combination of real clicks and fake clicks pouring into their crappy news sites with just salacious titles, <laughs> and there's ads all over these pages, and it's just this is the kind of scheme that, you know, ends up bilking advertisers for for lots of money, and, and I, I, you know, certainly a lot of these advertisers are naive, and, and certainly these sites are probably things that are, like, not, not on, oh, well, hopefully they're not on you know, uh, AdSense, or maybe they are, I don't know. I mean, hopefully these are, you know, served by less lower quality exchanges and whatnot. But I just use it as an example of the sophistication, like the sophistication of these ad fraudsters is basically at the level of Wall Street. You know, it's like the Wall Street level of sophistication with zero oversight, like zero penalty if you get caught. And I just look at that incentive structure. I have no way to comprehensively audit it. Nobody does. But I just look at the incentives, I look at the financial opportunity, and it, it's a little alarming to me. Well, you know, I think there are ways you can audit some of this stuff. I mean, ultimately, if you're an advertiser, you should see every click that's coming back into your website, and you should be able to know where that click came from. So if someone's doing this sort of thing where they're orchestrating bot traffic mixed in with, if you will, real traffic to drive you visitors, you should be able to detect that. And you should be, you know... You know, the, the challenge is, depending on the size of the advertiser, you know, you might not have the resources to be going doing through and doing that kind of a that kind of an audit. But, you know, if you're spending a sizable amount of money, it's probably that you need to spend some money to make sure that the people you're going with are actually doing the job that's being claimed. And that includes, by the way, you know, doing things like checking the references of the companies that you're employing and talking with <laughs> other people and how that they've been doing. But, you know, you do also have some checks and balances in that. If you are trying to run 
a sizable agency or an agency that's going to be something other than fly by night, you really don't want to wreck your reputation with any of the major networks because then your account gets hit and your account can't perform as well or things become more expensive for you or potentially you're not allowed to, you know, buy the ads as well. And so, you know, there's a strong incentive, I think, actually to to be doing it right. If you're going through, you know, a second, third tier kind of ad network and you're just purchasing stuff there because it's looking cheaper and, you know, they're promising you lots of stuff, then yeah, you know, you, you're probably going to be getting less quality types of things and mm-hmm. you, you paid less for it in the first place. So it, I guess it kind of comes back to you, you know, the adage of you kind of getting what you paid for, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I, I do think that there are some checks and balances out there. It's not just a complete free for all, but, you know, certainly I think if advertisers themselves are not trying to make those efforts to review what's happening, then it's more easy for them to get caught on that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. You wrote last month about what you consider to be Google's greatest search quality crisis. Explain what is going on with Google's search quality. Well, you know, in the in the fake news era now, you've had greater attention drawn onto the the kinds of content that people are seeing and how it's getting promoted. And what was happening with Google was that you had a lot of attention focused on Facebook. And then people noticed that like on Google, you had a, a fake election results story that was showing up in the top of its results, you know, promising that these were the real, you know, presidential election results and, and, and they weren't. And then suddenly it was like, well, now Google has a fake news problem of its own. And then that got magnified, especially by a series of articles that The Guardian ran, where you could search for things like, did the Holocaust happen? And Google came up with results that were dominated by denial sites telling you that it didn't happen, you know, or people saying that this was all fake. Or you had one search example that was done where if you said, are women evil, it would come back and tell you, yes, they are evil. All women are a little evil. All women had a little prostitute in them, which is horrible. I, I saw yeah. that. I saw you post that video. On- yeah. I mean, it, it was hor- it's horrible enough when you would just get that as a result. But the other thing that's happened, of course, is it. Google does what's called featured snippets, where they'll take one answer that they think really answers what you're looking for, elevate it above all the others in a special box. And if you have like a Google Home device, it'll read it to you. And that's, of course, what the video was, the Google Home reading this sort of thing. And so it caused people to, I think, especially focus on all these things that you could get Google to say or suggest or, you know, just a basic question like how could you have an answer like did the holocaust happen when it clearly did happen and these are the you know you you don't have these results that are coming up there and when you talk to google there are good explanations for why they have these bad things that would happen mm-hmm. i'm not saying they're good explanations like that's excusing them <laughs> but i'm saying that you know for example in the case of holocaust denial you don't have a lot of sites that are authoritative about the holocaust writing content explaining why the holocaust didn't happen because they, it's inconceivable to them that people would actually think that, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're explaining this well-documented history of this horrible thing that happened, and they don't think, well, we should write content to explain to somebody, yeah, it really did happen. You know, It's sort of like people don't think they need to write content explaining why the earth is not flat, which is a whole other search you can do on Google, and you'll find people telling you it's flat. But And so what would happen is you do these kinds of searches and then Google would give you back answers that it thought were the right answers because they addressed what you searched for, 
But Google itself isn't actually a truth machine. It can't actually tell you whether something's a fact or not. It's making guesses and it's making these terrible guesses. Hmm. And so I think it got to the point where you just had people, you know, especially questioning what was wrong with Google and why was it letting all this stuff happen and why was it supporting climate denial and, and anything that they didn't like would be part of, you know, this, this, this big, huge Google failure, which is why I said it was their biggest search challenge because you know, Google has built its reputation on being the perfect search engine and has all the right answers. And then here it was just being demonstrably proven that if you search for is Obama planning a coup, that yes, President Obama is planning a coup. <laughs> and, and he wasn't. So, yeah, I saw that one too. Yeah. Google Home doesn't know how to pronounce coup d'etat. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was like coup, coup, de, coup d'etat, I think. Yeah, it, it, has, it has issues. You know, this was really going to the core of their primary product and putting it into question. I mean, it's stuff that they're addressing now and they're trying to do a better job with it. But it was really something – this goes back to when you asked earlier, like how do they decide what things to address and what things are, are issues? They could see that these things happened, but they could see that these things happened in very small amounts. Like not that many people would search for things like did the Holocaust happen as a tiny number compared to say the people would search for Holocaust and Holocaust would have very good results. So they didn't really view it as a priority of, well, we better fix this when we're still trying to deal with something like we have sites that are, you know, hit by malware and we don't want the malware sites showing up for, you know, popular searches because that affects a lot of people. And, you know, now they've kind of realized, well, even if the number of these searches is small, the impact is much broader than that. So we actually really do need to do something. Do you feel that this is an outgrowth of having a person in power? The the most important person in the world is somebody who contradicts himself on a regular basis and basically has, has stirred up the world into questioning basically the foundation of what we consider to be truthful statements. I mean, he's basically questions, he questions the, like, whether we can even know facts. Like, that's the implication of a lot of what Trump does. Do you think this is an outgrowth of that? Is is that why we've had this fake news problem, this this Google search problem, this Facebook, Facebook and Google having to turn to human curation because, I mean, is this something new or is it just that... It was a confluence of circumstances. I probably lean more towards the confluence. I think you've continued to have this growth. I think it's – you've had people, you know, putting out their own versions of of what the truth is and their own alternative facts. And you've had people within their own filter bubbles that have been growing up more and more and more. And that, you know, it's especially I think all come around the election where it's really caused a great deal of awareness and concern among people. And, you know, now you have these two great, you know, gateways, if you will, or these two great communication channels, Google and Facebook, trying to grapple with, well, how do we deal with it? And they're tough issues, too, because, you know, in some cases, you can look at stuff and say, these are facts, and they're indisputable. So, you know, why are, why are, I mean, you want to say that, but then sometimes you're like, I thought that was a fact, and yet people are still disputing it. 
But then you can also get into things where you do have discussions and, and things that really are debatable. And you'll have both sides that will want to scream or multiple sides that will want to scream fake news. And you just get even more noise. And, you know, so trying to find how you get the right balance from allowing people to have free, open and healthy discussions as opposed to people getting lost in these, you know, rat holes of fake news and false claims. It's a big challenge. Yeah, the thing is, we can't, it goes back to Google's basic profound realization, which is that understanding the internet is about understanding references to each other and learning who you can trust from references. And that is a recursive property. And you can't go to the moon and confirm for yourself that there's an American flag on the moon and that we actually went there. Ultimately, you have to trust some people as being authoritative sources. You cannot go and scientifically confirm everything for yourself. Yeah, correct. And I, you know, I ultimately bring it back to, <laughs> and this is just too big of a long-term problem, but our education process in general and the ability for people to exercise good, solid, critical thinking skills. Yeah, we, we all can't go to the moon. So, you know, if we want to doubt whether someone went there or not, we have to employ our own you know, methods of evaluating all the information that's out there. I think most reasonable people would look at all the information that's out there and say, yeah, I think we went to the moon. <laughs> you know, that that it would be this vast conspiracy of things going on to try to convince mm -hmm. ourselves that we didn't go there. And right. I think the thing that's most disheartening to me is that one of the top resources that we've traditionally depended upon, which has been the media and newspapers especially, that they just get, you know, attacked and dismissed and assume that everything they write is lies. And, you know, it's not. <laughs> and and it's it's terrible. And I, you know, it's disheartening. And, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. So on that note, I know we're up against time. I just want to ask you one more question because I'm, you know, Software Engineering Daily is a, is a business I'm trying to build. And, you know, you've, you've had a lot of success building media companies or around technical topics. So I just want to ask, do you have any advice around growing a media business, particularly one that's directed at a, not a narrow, but it's like a particular niche? Well, you know, from my perspective, certainly picking your niche and being the best that you possibly can in it is one of the best things that you can do. You know, the world probably doesn't need yet another general news site. But I think people greatly appreciate vertical sites that go deep on topics and do it with care and really try to, you know, educate and, and respect their readers and give them good information. So, you know, that that's certainly something we've always tried to do. And, you know, it, it's worked for us. I hope it would work for other people. I think the other really important thing is, you know, understanding how you're earning off of that. Mm. And I did a post about two years ago and and this was after the new site GigaOM went under and people were like, well, that's it. You know, the vertical sites, it's all over. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not over for vertical sites. There are plenty of vertical sites that are doing fine and that continue to grow. You just don't tend to hear about them because they didn't take a lot of venture capital money. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and my advice there was that if you're, if you're, going to build something, understand how you're going to make money off of it if you're viewing it as an actual business. I think you've got some people who just view it as this is an exercise for me to get a, a, an exit down the line. And so they don't think about how they're going to fund it in the long term. So, you know, with our own aspect, we've, 
you know, always grown within our means. We, we never took VC and, you know, we add people as we can afford to add people. And, you know, we grow out in the ways that make sense for us to grow. And, you know, we, we potentially could have taken a lot of VC money, but then we might have built an operation that actually wasn't able to sustain itself, you know, to the amount of debt that it took on. So that's sort of my own take on that. <laughs> yeah, that's really instructive. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take those words of wisdom to heart. Danny, thanks a lot for coming on Software Engineering Daily, and thanks for producing a lot of content that I've read over the years. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.